0: Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the great name of Jesus we pray. Amen. For those of you whom I haven't met, my name is Steve Breedlove and I have the blessing and privilege of being the Bishop of the Diocese of Christ, our hope, which is the diocese in which... Grace Anglican is a new and uh, welcome church. We're so thankful to be able to be here, and this is the first of what I is fairly normal when I come uh, to parishes on an annual visit, and it's great to be here last night for the institution of Nick as the rector of this church, and then for today this celebration of Palm Sunday. I just returned this past Monday from two weeks in East Africa, a week in Rwanda, a week in Uganda. I've been to East Africa uh, many times, 13, 14 times, uh, to Rwanda each time, also to Kenya several times, but this is the first time I've been in Uganda. I was there ministering alongside Bishop Alfred Olwa, who is the Bishop of the Diocese of Longo in north central Uganda. And although I've had the privilege of ministering many times overseas, I really have never experienced such a responsiveness to the Word of God and to the Gospel as I did this last week. It was really an amazing experience. I've got all sorts of photos and videos on my phone, and I could tell you stories that would last a couple of hours, uh, things that I've never experienced before. Uh, Bishop Owa is a passionate evangelist. He's a wonderful shepherd of a large diocese and a great leader. And one of the most unforgettable things that happened to me while I was gone is that he gave me a new name. Uh, He designated me as Bishop Kana and introduced me everywhere as Bishop Kana, Uh, Kana is the word in the Luo language, which means donkey, bishop donkey, or as I gently said, we have another name for that in our culture. Uh, Bishop Owa is a great jokester. The Ugandans love to laugh, but when he first mentioned it, they really didn't know what to do with the fact that he just introduced Bishop Kana, uh, you know, the donkey. And he would go on to explain Bishop Steve is Bishop Kana because he's here to carry Jesus from village to village and through our streets and he's here to work to bring Jesus to us and in fact it was true I was there uh, five and a half days I preached 11 times and I gave three devotionals for staffs of different university or colleges uh, it was indeed uh, a privilege to be the Lord's donkey and they got their money's worth let's put it that way uh, I hope and pray today a donkey plays a surprisingly significant role in the story of Palm Sunday he or she is a character in the story who takes a back seat, part of the scenery but in fact is a key that unlocks the meaning of the event Jesus prophetically described and instructed his two disciples where to find this donkey how to secure it how to bring it to him what would happen along the way so you can know from the beginning that his riding into Jerusalem on the back of the foal of a donkey was something that was clearly orchestrated and planned. And by the way, let me just stick in here the fact that Jesus is a master of the symbolic with deeper meaning. He knows how to unpack the layers of meaning. So if you think ahead uh, to the post-resurrection appearance when he's walking down the road of Emmaus and he tells those disciples, you know, spends the whole time explaining how the entire scriptures reveal him i can just imagine all the layering of meaning that he was unfolding in that but in this moment uh, what he's doing is planning and orchestrating an event that pulls together significant aspects of israel's prophetic legacy and israel's history and i want to explain that to you a little bit beginning with prophecy back in genesis chapter 49 you're welcome to look at this in your bibles or just take note of it genesis chapter 49 verses 8 through 12. The context there is Jacob's blessing of his 12 sons, though I have to admit that some of the blessings are not ones that I would have wanted to receive, right? Uh, But the first surprise comes, of course, is that the oldest son, Reuben, is not designated as the heir of the promise or as Jacob's heir. And in fact, sons 2 and 3, Simeon and Levi, are likewise dissed. (laughs) They're declared unworthy of bearing the name or the leadership role or the heritage of the Abrahamic promise going forward. And then you get to Judah, son number four. And it starts this way. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub; From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between, from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now you don't have to dig deep into that to realize that Judah is being designated as the leader, right? As the king. It's a royal image. And there are several vivid pictures that emerge. But there's one that I want to pause and note for you. Because in the text I read, it said that the scepter shall not depart from him until tribute comes to him. But in a large number of ancient texts, Hebrew text and the translations it literally says until Shiloh comes and Shiloh is the word that means peace until peace comes in other words he will reign until the fulfillment of peace then you go on in verse 11 binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth than milk. Now, there's a lot of mystery in those verses, and yet, if you read it in the context of what we know in the Gospels, particularly you think of John chapter 15, when Jesus declares, I am the true vine. For centuries, God had proclaimed and called Israel to be this choice vine, to bear fruit that would bring blessing to the world, and that was a vision that Israel consistently failed to fulfill, and in fact, In the book of Isaiah, they're indicted for it several times. Remember the symbolic cursing of the fig tree that was to happen just after Palm Sunday. Because the fig tree was likewise a symbol of Israel with the idea of fruitfulness that would be a blessing to the whole world. But because they refused to bear fruit for the sake of the world, Jesus curses the fig tree as a symbolic statement of Israel. But he announces in that same context on Monday, Thursday, that he is the true vine. Now tie that with what Jacob had said 2,000 earlier, years earlier, that a donkey's colt would be bound by rope to the choice vine. And remember that this has to do with the tribe of Judah. And remember what tribe did Jesus come from, right? The tribe of Judah. Add that... His garments would be washed in wine, the blood of grapes, literally. And again, we don't have to figure out the details of the meaning to get the picture, right? Because standing on this side of the cross, we know all of the implications that are being built into that prophetic statement from 2,000 years before Jesus' incarnation. Now, Jacob's prophetic statement is joined to Israel's history. The donkey shows up frequently and I won't turn to that, but just have to trust me on this in first and second Samuel, the donkey shows up frequently in association with the recognized recognition of Israel's two first kings, Saul and David. Both ride donkeys in the context of being recognized or proclaimed as the king of Israel. Plus Absalom, in his attempted coup, rides a donkey as a symbolic proclamation of himself as king. And by the way, you got to know the irony of The same donkey became Absalom's executioner, by the way, right? I think God was uh, in control of this one, right? David, after the rebellion of Absalom was put down, returns to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and he rides exactly the same road into the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives that Jesus, his greater son, will ride a thousand years later. Later on, Solomon's recognized and declared king when he rides into Jerusalem on the back of his father David's donkey. So we start to get this, I think, unexpected historical picture, at least for me. Uh, We see donkeys as lowly beasts of burden. That's why the people in Uganda sort of laughed when they said, Bishop donkey. You know, the donkey in Uganda is kind of like a donkey here, right, Uh, not a very impressive animal. But they are an interesting animal. I'm not going to go too far down the road because I could get myself in trouble here, but they are famous for being smart. In fact, if you look at the internet, smarter than horses, (laughs) okay, that's what it says, at least through the internet says so. But here's the main point that I want to make. In Israel, they were actually royal steeds as well as beasts of burden. Kings of Israel rose, rode them in proclamation that they were coming to reign in peace. And the donkey would always be what they rode once the battle was over. In other words, things had been settled down. The, the questions, the debates were done. The battle had been won. The true and rightful king was being recognized. And he was the one who came on the royal steed that was the, the animal, the beast of peace. The war horse was also a royal steed, but it was a war horse, okay? And so the king might wear it, ride right, a war horse or imagine a war horse at the beginning of the battle, but after the battle is over, it's the donkey that proclaims peace. Now, from that prophecy and that history, I want to scroll forward to another prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the coat, on the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be broken, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and also from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Wow. How many messages are packed into that one? The king, the king of Zion, will come into the city on the back of the foal of a donkey. He comes as a righteous, humble king, bringing salvation. He is coming through the blood of the covenant to set prisoners free from the waterless pit. You know what the waterless pit is, people? That's hell. He will bring peace. And in bringing peace, he will literally cut off the war, ho- war horse. says that. In other words, he will cease conflict and hostility. He will bring reconciliation. He will restore what God intended from the beginning. The king speaks peace. He conquers conflict. He hostility and fear. And he reconciles people. And ultimately reconciles prisoners through the blood of the covenant to life itself. Fairly strong prophecy. So Jesus' choice to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey is a pretty powerful declaration. Of what? I am the Messiah. I am the King. I am the King of Peace. By the way, did you notice in the passage that was read from Luke tonight today, the Passion passage, at least six times, maybe seven times, there is a reference, the King of the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ. The people got the message. That was, the message was really clear. That was being proclaimed so we can bring it all together into almost like a list of declarations that happen on Palm Sunday in association with the fulfillment of the specific prophecy of riding on a donkey into Jerusalem he takes up the scepter of Judah he rides the same road in the same way as David when he returned as king he comes as the son of David continuing the royal line fulfilling the royal promises made to David he directly fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah. He comes to bring peace and to make war cease. He's the choice vine, the true vine, the true Israel tied to the foal of a donkey. The one who is truly God's son to bring fruit and blessing to the nations. He will shed his own blood, wash his own garments in the blood in order that people might be washed clean in the blood and to reconcile warring factions and in hostility. He will set prisoners free from the waterless pit. He will establish a sacramental meal in which wine is declared to be the blood of the covenant. He receives the honor and blessing of the multitudes. And when they proclaim the truth, they are proclaiming the truth. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Glory to God in the highest. By the way, at every Eucharistic liturgy we, we say that. In the Sanctus, we sing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It comes straight from this passage. It is by declaration a welcoming of Jesus as King, a welcoming of the Messiah into our midst, into our lives, and we are coming into his presence. When the Pharisees rebuke Jesus for receiving the accolades, he says, If these people are silent, the stones will break forth all creation sings the mountains and the hills declare together the glory of the Lord Jesus is revealed as king messiah the long expected ruler of Israel the king of peace and righteousness the king whose blessed rule extends to the whole world what is not yet clear is so far in the story as we're reading it is how this peace will be achieved now it's been of course stated But yet, it's not yet recognized. And so the next event, when Jesus crests the hill, he sees the city of Jerusalem in verse 41, and he weeps. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The things that make for true peace are not yet recognized, but they will unfold when the prophesied king of Israel refuses to take up the sword that the nation of people expected and even demanded that he took, take up, they could not get their eyes off the idea of a king on a war horse coming in to obliterate the foreign powers. And when Jesus deliberately came in as the king of peace and takes up the role of a servant and walks toward Calvary, Calvary which includes submitting to arrest and injustice and rejection, that arrest turns the crowds against him. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where people have great expectations and disappointment turns to offense and offense turns to anger. But I can easily imagine this actually after having just come back from Uganda. when I, mean, I would go into places and people would literally be walking the streets and celebrating an expectation because this is the first bishop from the West that had been there in 20-something years. And if I'd come in and spoke false gospel, or if I'd come in and disappointed them, that joy would have turned to anger and disappointment very, very quickly. And that's what happened in this situation because they had wrong expectations of Jesus. And I wonder how many people who shouted Hosanna when the miracle-working Jesus took on the symbols of the Messiah become part of the crowd who shout, crucify him. Because they, who had welcomed him, wanted to make sure that anybody who might be observing them realized that they had woken up and they were no longer supporting this king who was a reject. This king who had been arrested. They wanted to distance themselves from Jesus. Because anybody who's in the train of a failed rebel is also caught in his judgment. But as Jesus has said, Jesus already said, Jerusalem, you have no idea what makes for true peace. And he assumes the identity of the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And even his closest disciples fail to understand. And the work of the cross unfolds as something only God can do. And in fact, I think in a very, very powerful way, God and God alone is on the cross before God doing what only God can do. And people look on and they don't understand. Because God is doing what only God can do. Reconciling us to God. Through the atoning blood of Jesus. But that's another story. We've got all week to explore that. For now I just want to sit with the marvelous, wonderful, amazing way. In which Jesus consciously pulls together thousands of years of prophecy and history. To proclaim himself as the king of peace. Humble. Humble. Gentle, unwaveringly true and righteous, so approachable that the children just run to him. They run. That's the same Lord, I believe, who invites all of us week after week after week. Come to me, all you that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn in me, for I am gentle, meek. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And I pray that as you enter into this holy week, and I do pray this for all of us, myself included, is that we will continually come to Jesus knowing the welcome arms that await us. Let me end by just reading two more verses from the prophecy of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation as he Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And then last, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown they will shine on his land. For how great is his goodness! How great is his beauty. How great is his goodness. How great is his beauty. Amen and amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.